0: that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang... Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and honour. And glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In his vision, John is invited to ascend into heaven through an open door so he can see the Lord enthroned in Zion. But as happens in dreams, every time he looks at the throne, he sees something different. At the start of Revelation chapter 4, he can make out a figure sitting on the throne, but it's quite nebulous in appearance. He can't really see anything clearly at all. All he can see is that the one sitting on the throne had the appearance of jasper or carnelian. They're precious stones. Carnelian was a precious stone. that was reddish in colour. Jasper could range from green to blue to purple to rose. So even the colours are pretty indistinct. The image of the one on the throne is hazy and vague. It's far easier to look at the figures around the throne who are worshipping the one who's on the throne. In this way John avoids bringing God down to our level. Because to picture God in human form runs the risk of projecting ourselves onto God's image, which could be potentially idolatrous. To say, oh, he's just like me. Well, that is, that is to, fail the cap, to fail to capture the majesty and the indescribable nature of God. When we sang that hymn, crown him with many crowns earlier, I wonder how many of you understood the meaning of that line, ineffably sublime, as you sung it. It means indescribably, Exalted. There's a whole raft of literature published in philosophy on what it means to be ineffable, indescribable. People talk about God being the transcategorical, ultimate, noumenal reality whose attributes transcend human comprehension. You can't begin to put into words, you can't even begin to contain in your minds. And John captures a phenomenal appearance of that God. Just something of who this God is as he sees this indescribable figure on the throne. The living God who created all things and rules over all things defies description. So John doesn't even try. And yet suddenly at the start of chapter 5... He sees that the figure sitting on the throne is holding a scroll in his right hand. Strange. Didn't notice that a moment ago. There's a sudden moment of clarity, as it were, as if the camera has just kind of zoomed in and refocused. So suddenly you can see that this figure has a right hand and in that hand there is a scroll. The right hand represents power, strength, authority. If a reigning figure is holding a scroll in his right hand, you can bet... It's going to be an important document. Clearly, it is, because it has writing not just on the inside but the outside as well. Maybe it contains a massive amount of information. Maybe the writing on the outside summarizes the content of what is written on the inside. But it's sealed with seven seals. And you only go to the trouble of sealing a document that many times if the contents are of the utmost importance. The scroll is actually quite similar in appearance to documents that were used at that time to record the last will and testament of people. And the seals would have been broken when the time came to put that last will and testament into effect. This is the plan of God for the world. This is what God is going to do. This is how God is going to deal with with the world in the future. And it's all been recorded beforehand on a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. God is the one who determines the world's future. He's written the script. The script is written on that scroll and it is sealed in God's presence. It can't be tampered or altered or changed. But in John's vision, the problem is there's no one authorised... To break the seals, open the scroll and read its contents. And the scroll, the contents of the scroll can't be put into effect until they're read. There's no one worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Not in heaven, not on earth, not even under the earth. No matter where you look, there is no one actually who is great enough, powerful enough, good enough to break the seals. And John breaks down in tears because no one can open the scroll. It's like it's the scroll of destiny, and God's purposes can't be fulfilled until the seals on the scroll are broken and the contents are read, because only once the contents are read can they be fulfilled. But then one of the 24 elders tells John, Look, stop crying, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, has triumphed, is victorious. He's the one to break the seals. And open the scroll. And John dries his eyes and looks again. And this time he sees in the centre of the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures. And in the midst of the elders, no victorious rampaging lion. But a little lamb standing there. Again, something he'd never noticed before. And because the lamb is standing up, it must have been alive. And yet for all the world it looked as if it had been slaughtered for sacrifice or Maybe as if it had been mauled by a lion and left for dead. Bizarrely, this lamb also has seven horns and seven eyes. At that point, it's probably best to try and stop visualising what it looked like. But horns were a symbol of authority and power. And the lamb has seven of them, so this lamb has the right degree of authority to be standing there at the centre of God's throne. The right degree of authority to break those seals and open the scroll. And the seven eyes represent the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth. And this functions as a symbol for the omniscience of God. Whatever's happening in the world, you can be sure that God in heaven is fully 100% aware of it. But you find yourself thinking, how did John miss the Lamb when he looked before? It all adds to the dreamlike quality of his vision. And at first you find yourself wondering whether the figure on the throne has been replaced by the lamb because the lamb is standing in the centre of the throne. But you look again and suddenly the figure on the throne is back there and this time the lamb is coming to take the scroll from his hand. It's very dreamlike. It's there and then then it's, then it's, it's coming in. But if there is a decisive moment in the chapter it's this point where the lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the figure on the throne. That is the crucial moment in this vision. It kind of (coughs) changes everything. Because if the Lamb has the scroll, then the seals will be broken, and the contents of the scroll will be read and put into practice, and the sovereign purposes of God will be fulfilled. But there doesn't seem to be any rush because the rest of the chapter is spent celebrating the way in which the Lamb is qualified to take the scroll. Four living creatures, the 24 elders, break out into a song addressed to the Lamb saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. In chapter 4, God is worthy because he created everything. In chapter 5, the Lamb is worthy. Because you were slain, they say, With your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation different nationalities represented here tonight all of us redeemed by Jesus Christ then out of nowhere there are suddenly thousands upon thousands 10,000 times 10,000 angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders singing worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise Then you pan back still further and it's every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, everything in all these places singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Close relationship to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and glory and power forever and ever. And the camera zeroes back on the throne room again and the singing stops and the four living creatures say, Amen. The elders fall down and worship. So amidst great ceremony, huge celebration of the scroll is taken and the seven seals are duly broken by a lamb that has been slain and is now alive. And we'll look at the breaking of those seals next week in the morning. But the lamb that has been slain is a clear picture of Jesus. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The slain lamb evokes the Passover lamb one of which was sacrificed in each household every day, every year, as a way of celebrating how God redeemed his people out of the land of Egypt. There was a sense in which on that occasion God used the blood of a lamb to purchase, to redeem his people out of slavery, to set them free, so that they would be a kingdom of priests for him, a nation who would rule as his appointed representatives. But in Revelation 5, the scope is far greater. The blood of Jesus has bought for God a people redeemed from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. And it's God's purpose that they, these people whom Christ has redeemed, they will rule the earth. The sheer conceit of that claim is absolutely mind-boggling. It is for us today, even more so, when John wrote this down. The tiny minority of hard-pressed Christian believers scarcely holding their own against a suspicious and hostile world. These people, these nobodies, these people reign on earth? Faced with the overwhelming imperial might of the apparently invincible Roman Empire, where Caesar was universally acknowledged as Lord and frequently hailed as the Son of a God, What chance did these Christians stand? John tells his readers, one day as God's people, you'll be the ones to rule the world. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? Yet 2,000 years down the line, the Roman Empire is studded in ancient history in the church. Well, I hesitate to say that the church is still going strong, but we're still here. Which is more than could be said for Caesar. And at a time when it's easy for us to feel vulnerable and marginalized, a bit pathetic and irrelevant, let's not forget that Jesus died to make us a kingdom and priests, to be his representatives in the world, to be representatives of his kingdom. One day we will be in charge. We are people set apart to serve God. And it's his purpose, recorded beforehand in that scroll sealed with seven seals, that one day we will reign on earth. And that still feels a little bit incredible and far, far too daunting just to be able to accept without a degree of hesitation. But John wants us to see ourselves as God sees us. In the eyes of the world we are nobodies, but in the eyes of God... We are people redeemed through the blood of his Son because we have a destiny that one day we will reign with Christ and through Christ to govern the world. Does that sound incredible to you? I don't blame you if it does. But maybe if it does it's because we've lost sight of the fact that the God who claims us as his own... And who redeemed us by the blood of his Son. is not some petty man-made deity who went out of fashion 2,000 years ago. The God to whom we belong is the God who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. We need to recapture a vision of the greatness of God and therefore of our significance as people who belong to him. And Jesus isn't just one religious leader in a plethora of competing world religions. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. He alone laid down his life to deal with our sin. He alone shed his blood to redeem us so that we can be God's people. He uniquely rose victorious from the grave. There is no one else seated at the center of God's throne. It is to him alone that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We belong to, we worship, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't do yourself down. Remember who you are. And you are who you are because of who you belong to the one who redeemed us and made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. For Christians living in the shadow of a totalitarian regime then, as many Christians live in the shadow of totalitarian regimes today, Revelation is a deeply seditious and profoundly subversive book. Because it says the powers that be are going to pass away. And you, you hard-pressed, vulnerable, persecuted people, you are on the winning side. It's a powerful message. It's one very good reason why John wrote his book down in such a cryptic fashion, because it's political dynamite, actually. But... And this is the really tough bit, and maybe the bit that we instinctively want to shy away from. The victory is awarded to those who stay true to Jesus and hold on to their faith, even to the point of laying down their lives. The key is not to measure success or status using the standards adopted by the world, because in the eyes of the world, we are losers. The key thing to recognise is that what the world prizes actually counts for nothing in the sight of God to whom we belong. And when his kingdom comes, everything will be turned upside down. The last will be first and the first will be last. If we believe that, do we set our priorities accordingly? It's immensely significant that the one who is counted worthy to break the seals and open the scroll is the lamb that was slain. It's not the powerful, regal lion, the king of the beasts that everyone admires for its strength and its speed and its savagery. It is the little lamb, the victim, vulnerable, inconsequential. Just one of thousands of lambs sacrificed and eaten every year without a second thought. The lamb that was slain represents Jesus. The one who was crucified like a nobody on the cross but who died to us. And the way in which the slain lamb becomes the centre of universal worship sums up the way in which Jesus tortured to death as a common criminal will one day be acknowledged as Lord of all. It was through his death he won the victory. And the power and the authority of Jesus is fundamentally different to the power and the authority acknowledged and claimed and exercised by the world. The world acclaims the lion but actually actually, no it's, it's a slain lamb who's at the centre of the throne. Paul Burbridge has written a, a good parody of the world's priorities, entitled, A Little Advice, um, which parodies the words of Jesus. Seeing the state of the nations, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the world leaders came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them through the mass media, saying, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, why stop there? Resist one who's evil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek... Haven't you got cause enough to smash his face in? And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, get your lawyers onto it immediately and take them to court, for generosity is a sign of weakness. You've heard that it used to be said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Hate your neighbours also. And be suspicious of their intentions, for what good is trust in this day and age? For if you love those who love you, you've only yourself to blame when things turn nasty. Doesn't everyone do the same? Therefore, be selfish, that the whole world might be selfish. And if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but haven't aggression, I'm a namby pamby and a windy wet legs. And if I have political powers and understand all problems, both social and economic, and if I enter all disputes but have not aggression, I'm nothing. And if I cling on to all my possessions and protect myself at all costs without aggression, I'm done for. Aggression is fruitless and harsh. Aggression is not humble or caring, but arrogant and rude. Aggression always insists on its own way, avoiding discussion or compromise. It's proud and strong. It lashes out at once when its interests are threatened and rejoices at at another's defeat. Aggression hurts all things, tramples all things, breaks all things, destroys all things. Aggression always ends in tears. So hate, greed and aggression abide these three, but the greatest of these is aggression. The world's agenda, the world's values, the world's power. The lion on the throne, but it isn't. It's the slain lamb that says no to aggression. That's willing to embrace vulnerability. The slain lamb that chooses the way of service, non-retaliation, love. Because what counts isn't winning, what counts is the kind of people that we are. And the way in which we live our lives. Yes, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed and the seals can be broken, but that triumph was achieved through sacrifice on the cross. And the road to victory led through apparent defeat. And we're called to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Jesus overcomes the might of the power of Rome not by fighting them with a bigger and better army by laying down his life on Calvary. The cross spells the end of earthly power games. The values of this world, its power, its success, its status, its prestige, its aggression, these things have no place in the world to come. We win the victory by taking up our cross and following Jesus. And that's a really hard message for us to hear in the West because If following Jesus starts to become costly, we have so much to lose. But then Revelation is an iconoclastic book. It demolishes what the world values in terms of status, success and power. And according to the extent in which we have embraced the world's values of status, success and power, we will find it a profoundly disturbing and troubling book. Because it challenges the values that we live by. the centre of the throne stood a lamb that had been slain if we want to reign with Jesus in the world to come we need to be prepared to count the cost to follow him here and now in many parts of the world today Christians are finding that following Jesus is immensely costly yet they would assert he is worth it when we sing worthy is the lamb who was slain There are times when we need to stop and ask ourselves so, how much is Jesus really worth to me? Spend a moment in quiet. Lord Jesus Christ, you are at the centre of God's throne, the lamb that was slain. And we confess that so often we do not put you at the centre of our lives, but we push you to the margins because it's safer and it's easier. And there are times when we don't want our faith to get in the way of everything else we want to do. Yet when we see that vision and Revelation, we recognise that's not right. The only place for you to be is at the centre of our lives. The only place for you to be is on the throne of our hearts. So we ask that you forgive us. That you'd realign our priorities. That you'd take your rightful place. And in a world that does not acknowledge you as Lord, enable us to live as people who do. Because worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Amen.